So, listeners, I've got a quick question for you. When you book a movie ticket online and you get to pick any seat in the house, you always pick a good spot, right? So when it comes to protecting your financial future and your personal livelihood through a stable income, would you ever settle for an average financial investing tool? Now there's a smarter way to manage your money, and that is Betterment. Betterment is an online financial advisor for people who refuse to settle for average. Plan for retirement, reach your financial goals, and make the most of your money. I think your interesting listeners can get up to one year managed free by visiting betterment.com slash interesting. That's betterment.com slash interesting for up to one year managed free. Hello and welcome to I Think You're Interesting. I'm Todd Vandorf, the I and I Think You're Interesting. And this week we're talking to TV scene stealers. We're going to be talking to Darcy Carden of NBC's The Good Place and Natasha Rothwell of HBO's Insecure. Let me start with Darcy. When I first started watching The Good Place, which is a show about a woman who dies, gets to the afterlife and sort of realizes she maybe was not the best person ever. I, of course, was watching for Kristen Bell, who's the star, Ted Danson, who plays sort of her mentor in the afterlife. But then there was this performer, Darcy Carden, who plays Janet, who's kind of a robot or maybe a demon or an angel or something. She's kind of a computer program to access the infinity of the universe. And she's a terrific comedic creation, not really like any other character in TV history. And Darcy just nailed every joke. There's a bit in the first season where she keeps pulling cactuses out of nowhere. That is one of the funniest things I've seen on TV this decade. Every week, she's doing something great. And here's a clip. Uh, Janet, how many Janets have there been? There have been 25 generations of Janet. Each new update of Janet gains more wisdom and social abilities. Fun fact, the first Janet had a click wheel. So it's like aging for a human. You're, You're growing up. That's how I like to think of it, Chidi. I can't eat, so every time there's a new version of Janet, I like to take a piece of birthday cake and smash it around where my mouth is. Darcy isn't just a good place. She's also starred on HBO's Barry. She's been in any number of other things where she's always doing something unusual or fascinating or just plain funny. I'm so excited to have her here this week. We're going to talk about what it means to play a non-human, which is something not every actor has to think about. So... Go watch The Good Place. It's one of the few shows I push on literally everybody I talk to. It's the first two seasons are on Netflix. The third season debuts NBC uh, Thursday night, September 27th. So get that on your calendar. But we're going to talk with Darcy in just a second. Darcy, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. So you don't play a human on this show. True. Which is a complicated challenge, I think. I think you're right. And when I, but when I've seen you in other things, like there is something ineffably not human that you bring to Janet. If that, and I'm wondering, what is what's your process like for saying, I'm going to play a thing that doesn't exist? Right. I know it's it's it is a weird one. I've never done that before. (laughs) I've never played a role like this before. I think like a, a way that I can make it make sense to me is to think of her as like. A kid, mm-hmm. innocent and experiencing things for the first time, that is something that's helpful. I also sometimes just um, 
I do think of her as like a little computer brain sometimes where right. like my brain is, I, I mean, acting is, acting is goofy and it's especially goofy to talk about acting, but <laughs> there is, you know, sometimes I am, you know, I want to say like, um, channeling some sort of like robot brain right. <laughs> where I'm just kind of blanking out, mm-hmm. which maybe makes my job easy. But, uh, I feel like Janet, um, I don't want to say copies, but you know, is always taking information, right? Mm-hmm. From everything around her. So a lot of the, like, let's say facial expressions or emotions that she has are often what the person I'm acting with is giving me. Cause I feel like that's maybe yeah. something she would do, you know, mm-hmm. is to sort of mimic what the person is giving her or what she's seen before. Because I, I did find that early on, I just kept wanting to react. I mean, that's like what, you know, you're taught to do as an actor is to your scene partner gives you something and you react to it and then you say your lines and then you react to it and blah, blah, blah. And and she's not, she can't really react to anything, like right. not too much anyway. Yeah. And so I had to kind of figure out some little tricks that made it <laughs> so that I wasn't just a blank face, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think what I'm saying, one of the things I'm saying there is she doesn't have if female pronouns are appropriate sure. for Janet, you yeah. know? Um, yeah. She doesn't have a super wide emotional range, right. which I think is more challenging in some ways than like, you know, doing the traditional, like going from tears to right. laughter right. to like, you have to be, you have to do all of that, but within like, from going from like one to five <laughs> instead of one to 25. So what's the, what's the challenge in that? It is a challenge. I mean, it's, it's, there's challenges to it. And then there's, you know, amazing, wonderful, mm-hmm. like I, I love, I love, love, love playing Janet. And, and the longer we've gotten to do it, the sort of I want to say easier it's become or like more at home I've become with her. But that first season in particular was a challenge to sort of, yeah, stick within those parameters. It's almost like having, there's these um, boundaries, mm-hmm. I guess. And I mean, this is kind of a goofy one, but in season two, mm-hmm. there's a scene, there's an episode called Janet and Michael where I don't want to, I mean, I, it's always hard with spoilers, right? Well, well, you're talking with the Ted Danson character who is kind of the, uh, the head of the good place. Right. And it's just basically an episode with you two. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And, and, uh, I'm saying along the lines of, I need you to get rid of me. Mm-hmm. And he's saying, I don't want to do that. And I finally convince him to tell me why. And, and he says, the reason is friends that we're friends and he loves me. And it's just something he had never admitted to this kind of computer robot girl before. Mm-hmm. And, um, Ted got like, because he is an incredible, amazing, emotionally available actor. He got like a little emotional mm-hmm. in the scene and just seeing him get emotional made me Darcy emotional. But then I panicked because Janet wouldn't get emotional. Right. <laughs> but then I talked to Mike sure about it and, you know, she is sort of evolving and there are, you know, there were sort of strict rules that have, because she's evolving and, and maybe learning and acquiring new, I guess, feelings. Mm-hmm. Just kind of, I mean, evolving is the best, least spoilery way to put it. Mike sure said things like that are okay. We can be pushing boundaries now and we can be exploring and seeing what, what comes naturally but it still has to sort of remain correct within this world and within this character. It's confusing. <laughs> Mike Schur is the uh, creator and yes. executive producer, and he did Parks and Rec, and he's a he's an all-around comedy genius. A so, true comedy yeah. genius <laughs> and just one of the best people on this earth. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Have you he's, met him? Yes, I have. I've he's met just, him. He's a good dude. He's, he's a good dude. That's uh, one of the things I – like his sets are sort of famously like supportive and right. open and and that's uh, not always the case. In, in Hollywood? Hollywood, yeah. What has that brought to the show? Like what does that bring to The Good Place having that? Because this is a show that deals with 
um, you know, ethics and yeah. morality yeah. and like the fate of the universe. I mean, I imagine that any workplace, any show, it is like you said, it's it's hard that top to bottom, you know, left to right, everybody on the set is um good, happy to be there, excited to be at work, not not like ego driven and and getting in their own way and, you know, there's so many weird things that can happen in this little biz. In every biz, but this biz in particular, because it's all about like power and fame and money and weird shit. Yeah. Am I allowed to say that? No, great. Yeah, you can swear all you want. Oh, I'm going to then. Yeah. <laughs> um, but this, because our you know captain, our ship captain is Mike Shore, and not to mention Kristen Bell and Ted Danson, we've got three of like truly deeply wonderful, good human beings, mm-hmm. and it just trickles down and around, and and we just don't have room for dicks. There's no room for jerks on the set. It doesn't – I can't even imagine it. It wouldn't last. Mm -hmm. They would be fired in a very nice way, (laughs) but they would not stay there. Yeah. It would stick out like a sore thumb. And, you know, I don't know how that affects the show that you watch other than, you know, we love being around each other. Mm -hmm. We have good chemistry IRL in real life, Mm -hmm. okay? And I think that, you know, can come through on the screen. I mean, I enjoy watching any – mix of any of the cast. You know what I mean? I love right. whoever the, if it's two person scene or a six person scene, I'm weirdly like a big fan of this show that I happen to be on. Yeah. So I really, you know, I love watching the different pairings and seeing how um, people interact and, and their real life chemistry come through. Yeah. Yeah. So you like to watch the show. Do you like to watch <laughs> yourself in the show or is that still like? It is. It's a little tricky. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It. I mean, it's definitely easier to watch yourself in a great show. Yeah. You know, it's like I – I mean, I trust the writers with my life and the editors are incredible. And so you just trust yourself to do your thing and they trust them to do their things and it usually ends up working. Not to say <laughs> I don't love watching it. I'm mm. usually kind of watching with like a little bit of my hands over my eyes. But I usually watch one by myself mm-hmm. and just kind of stare at myself and gag the whole time. And then I watch another with my husband or friends or whatever, and it's so much easier to take. Yeah. It's yeah. just, I think most actors have a, a little bit of a hard time. I have to listen to this podcast every week How's to that? pull out a little segment yeah. to like put on our website. And uh, it's, it's We terrible. hate our own voices, yeah. don't we? Yeah. Our voices are so dumb. It, they're like. so dumb. <laughs> our voices are dumb. Um, but- I was talking to, I think, some other actors the other day. I can't remember who it was about if they watch themselves, if we watch ourselves. And a couple were saying, like, there are so many things that they never watched of their own. And there's almost like a compulsion with me. Like, if someone else has seen it, I have to see it. Yeah. It's kind of like, you know, knowing if someone's talking about you behind your back or something. Like, I I don't care if you're talking behind my back. I just have to know what you're saying. That type of thing. It's like that. Like, I need, even if I hate what I watch, I need to see it so that I'm, like, I don't know. I don't know if some sort of – I don't know if that's narcissistic or just being in charge of my own uh, destiny. Well, yeah. <laughs> a little bit of both. Yeah. <laughs> well, you like before um, The Good Place. Yeah. You did all sorts of stuff. Like you're just – like your IMDb page is just a long list of, of credits. weird of, Like shit. weird credits. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Tell me about like kind of journeying through that because then yeah. you did The Good Place and you like you got Barry and like right. those happened very close to each other in as far as fact, I can tell. Within the same month. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Isn't that crazy? That's amazing. I know. I Yeah. I should look at my date book because I want to say it was like a week apart. I know we shot the pilots a week apart, which is crazy because we're in season three of The Good Place and just about to shoot season two of Barry. And I mean, any character would be very different from Janet, but that's a very different character. Yeah. Yeah. 
but you know, you say I have a long like IMDb history, which is true, but it's nothing that you know. You right. know what I mean? It's like a lot of weird little. I mean, I want to say indie films, but hardly even that. It's a lot of like comedy sketches, a lot of web series. I <laughs> yeah, no, that's not how you say it. Um, I perform still since the early two thousands. I've been performing at the Upper Citizens Brigade sure. in New York and LA. Um, so you know, a lot of uh, relationships I've made there. You go off and you you make a little something, and mm-hmm. you know, sometimes it goes to like a little short film festival or a real film festival. Wait a second. I just implied that a short film is not a real <laughs> film. Feature film. Fe- sure. Yeah. But I did a couple of tiny bit parts on a couple things you would have heard of. Mm-hmm. But mostly it was just saying yes to just about everything that I thought was, you know, funny and not problematic. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and you just, as an actor, you just chug along and, and keep auditioning and keep forming relationships and with people that you think are talented and interesting. And sometimes things work out and sometimes they don't. And sometimes it takes a really long time for them to work out. And this was, you know, a decade or more of auditioning and trying to figure this out. And then getting um, The Good Place and Barry within the same month was like literally a dream come true and also scary. Like, yeah. like, you know, it seemed like too good to be true. Yeah. 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 Are you going to be able to continue on both shows? I am. As, yeah. you know, as of now, mm. who knows, you know, well, actually even, wait, let's see, the second season of Good Place and the first season of Barry shot in the same spring, shot okay. in the same amount of months. I definitely thought that I wasn't going to be able to do one or the other. Right. I thought it just wouldn't work out, but we got a lot of good people working on those shows that know what the heck they're doing and they made it work. And I got to do most of the episodes of Barry and, you know, I get to do the same this year. Mm-hmm. Are you really good at scheduling and day planning? And you know, all what's that? funny is I am really good at yeah. it, but this is out, it's like out of my, it's, it's, yeah, it's out of, it's your out of my hands. Mm-hmm. So there was that sort of like loss of um, power mm-hmm. where I was like, I can make this work. Yeah. Let me make it work. You yeah. know, I, I, I know how to do this. I've done this for my whole life, like mm-hmm. making, schedules work and having three jobs and working like going from job to job and then scheduling in a rehearsal and then a show afterward. Like I know how to do that. Mm -hmm. But then at some point it's out of your hands and it's up to producers and much more powerful people than me to make it work, which again, I didn't think was going to happen. I actually gave myself shingles, (laughs) (laughs) which is a stress related, uh, uh, disease, I guess, whatever it is, because I was like, well, it's just not going to work and my dreams will be smashed. And I was very, very stressed and I had to just sort of let go and let Jesus take the wheel. <laughs> <laughs> How do you learn to let go? That's 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 the thing I, I struggle with. I, it, it is I'm hard. Very type A. Yeah, I I guess I am type A about myself or about mm. my like career. You know, a lot of like being talked down from my amazing husband and my awesome manager that were just like it really is out of your hands. You've done everything you can. You just have to trust that it's either going to work out or if it doesn't, it's for a better reason or whatever. Mm. But um, I mean. How do you let go? You don't. You get shingles, then you go to the doctor, and then you get some cream, and you put the cream on, and then the shingles go away. Hmm. <laughs> that's a great way to think. Yeah, about that's it. a great way to think. It about is. It. Yeah. I do like that. One thing that I uh, that you mentioned when you were talking about getting those smaller parts yeah. about like working in whatever you could find, but also trying to make sure you weren't you were doing things that were funny and right. you weren't doing things that were problematic. Like, how did you learn when to draw that line? Like, how did you figure out? what your line was going to be. I love talking about this with actors, Eric Stone Street from Modern Family. I talked with him about when he was starting out, he didn't want to do things where the joke was just 
he was a bigger guy yeah, totally. and like he, but he really fought to do that. Yeah. So what were your lines? And you know, it, similarly, like it's, it's easy, especially in comedy to be the, the female character being, I'm almost saying like the female character in quotes, like I, I it, you get to a point where you're like, I don't want to play that again. Yeah. Like I want something, I don't want to just be the wife or the girlfriend or the mom or the whatever. Like I want, I want the nag. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. exactly. At first I think I just sort of, put my head down and was like, just do the work, just do good work and be easy to work with and nice and contribute and, you know, just do good work and those things will come. Mm -hmm. And, uh, in some way that is true, but also, you know, you have to, oh, it's just so difficult. I'm sure Eric, I mean, I would be really interested to hear what he had to say about that too, because it is a hard thing. And I know, you know, he came up in comedy as well. And it's a fine line of not wanting to take yourself too seriously. Mm -hmm. And also, um, I guess, I guess, okay. I guess what I have learned is I trust my own comic sensibility or my comic voice, Mm -hmm. which took years, but I know what I think is funny Mm -hmm. and what I think is cheesy or hacky or whatever. And it's never worth it Mm -hmm. in the end to do the thing where I'm like, I don't know if this is funny, but I'll just do it. Every time I've done that, I have totally regretted it. Yeah. Which, you know, is another, like early on in one's career, you get scared, like, well, what if I say no to this thing? And this is the thing that could have taken me to the next level, or this is the thing that gets nominated for a freaking whatever. And if I said no, then I'll never forgive myself. But there's also a point where I'm like, if that's the thing, I don't want to be a part of that thing. I'm okay with letting that go. Mm-hmm. I don't want to tie my name onto that thing anyway. I don't want that to be what people sort of associate me with or or think of me as, you know, if I'm playing the, let's say, naggy wife. Right then maybe I'm going to start being looked at as just the naggy wife. Like I, I, you just have to, oof, it's a little bit of like trusting time, trusting that you have something worth giving people mm-hmm. and that uh, there's so much also of this business is like right now, right now, what's next, what's next? Like I need, it has to happen now. Yeah. And as I've seen with not just myself but many people, like sticking with it and and like honing your voice and craft and all that stuff maybe is, is also worth something, you yeah. know? Yeah. Learning to say no is hard though. Isn't you it? Know? Yeah. <laughs> like I'm just getting to a point in my career where I'm like, I need to say no yeah. to some things. Me too. I'm still struggling yeah. with it. Like, I think actors are really protected when you get to like a place where you, you have, uh, I want to say people, like you've got your agent and you've got your manager and that starts to be a little easier to say no to things because it can kind of trickle through, you know, a scheduling problem or this and that. But I definitely had many, you know, times coming, coming up in my twenties and stuff where, where I had to sort of, I'm also not good at at just saying like, no, and here's why. Yeah. It's, it's usually some sort of no sandwich. Yeah. (laughs) You know, I'd love to, but (laughs) in the future, absolutely (laughs) this particular weekend, whatever it is, you know, I've also learned that can get you into trouble. If it's something that's not, that you really truly want to say no to to like no sandwich it or to overdo the, I wish I could. It's so great. You're amazing. Blah, blah, blah. Then it's like, oh, great. Well then we'll just actually move it to a different day so you can do it. So I think I've learned through experiences that sometimes being a little, a little straightforward can be okay. Where did you grow up? 
I grew up in the Bay Area in okay. California. I was, I was going to say it sounds very Midwestern, but. Oh, it, well, yeah. kind of. Where did you grow up? I grew up in South Dakota. Cool. So, yeah, nowhere near no. the Bay Area. Yeah, so, uh, but then I, I spent 10 years in New York. So right after I graduated college, I moved right to New York. More with Darcy in just a second. Support for this podcast and the following message comes from Smartwater. Not satisfied being like other brands, Smartwater looked up at the clouds and said, I wonder if we can one-up Mother Nature for a purer, crisper water. And guess what? They did. This is the kind of water that regular water gets jealous of. It's the water that refreshes like no other brand. Try it. Smartwater, vapor distilled for purity, electrolytes for taste. Imagine learning new recipes from Gordon Ramsay, or photography tips from Annie Leibovitz, or if you listen to this show, you might imagine learning about filmmaking from Martin Scorsese, or writing for television from Shonda Rhimes. Now you can learn from those master instructors with Masterclass. Masterclass offers online classes taught by the best in the world. Each class is shot with cinematic production quality and offers on-demand lessons loaded with exclusive content you'll find only on Masterclass. You can choose from classes taught by over 35 masters. There's Malcolm Gladwell on writing, Ron Howard on directing, astronaut Chris Hadfield on space exploration, if you're also planning to explore space, and there's so many more. Plus, new classes are always being added. Whether you are pursuing your passion or developing your career, you'll find a masterclass for you. I think your interesting listeners can unlock access to every masterclass for a year right now at masterclass.com interest. That's masterclass.com interest. You'll gain unlimited access to over 35 world-class masters, all for one surprisingly low annual price. Masterclass.com slash interest for unlimited access to Masterclass. Learn from the best in the world at Masterclass.com slash interest. One of the things that is sort of in good place lore, if you will. I will. Is that when Mike was first doing the show, he did like character breakdowns that had nothing to do with the actual characters. Because for some reason they were trying to keep the premise of a show a secret. And then when NBC picked up the show, they just immediately said what it was about. Right, so right, right. That was all for naught. Right. But what do you remember what oh, yeah. the breakdown was totally. for who became Janet? Like, okay, so meaning what my audition was or yeah. what? Okay, so it was a woman – Mm-hmm. A helpful woman, like I'm sure it said something along the lines of like a kind, helpful woman who worked at a um, hotline for broken dolls. So okay. you would call this woman and let her know like, you know, that my my doll's eye fell off. And mm-hmm. then she would come up, she, Janet, would come up with all these ways, to, all these problem solving uh, suggestions, mm-hmm. different ways. And they were insane. Yeah. But different ways to to fix the problem. And it was, you know, like my doll's eye fell off and then one was like something bigger. I don't know if it was like something more drastic. And then the last one I think was her husband called and like the house was on fire or something. And it was basically the same tone of like, well, here's how we can fix that. Mm-hmm. But it didn't say anything about robot anything. Mm-hmm. And it didn't say anything about the afterlife. It just was, you know, helpful, um, pleasant woman. Right. And what ended up being Janet in season one, especially the first few episodes, was like pretty much exactly what I right. what what the audition was. It right. just was like, how can I help? That's interesting to me um, because, like, 
I think that probably your background helped with that because that's basically a comedic sketch. Like yeah. that is something Lily Tomlin would have done yes, on Laughing. You totally, know? totally. Like, like, uh, tell me about approaching that audition. It's a funny one because I am such a huge Mike Schur fan. I had never met him before. Also, Drew Goddard, another amazing writer, director, producer. He, I knew he was going to be in the audition, and and so basically, it was two people that I was a huge fan of. Wait, that I were, no, that I were huge fans of, that I was huge fans of. That you were a huge fan of. There it is. There you go. Um, That I knew this role could not be mine Mm -hmm. for I was a lowly no one. But I also was like, this will be a great opportunity for me to like show these guys what I got or like make them laugh or I'm going to make an impression so that in season four of this show that they're making, they'll cast me as like, you know, the lunch lady. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and uh, so I did really put a lot of work into the audition and, and um, auditions are insane and stupid and horrible and weird and make no sense. Right. And sometimes you connect with a character and sometimes you don't and you just have to sort of make it work. This was a character that I really, I was like, ooh, I totally know this who this person is. Yeah. And, it, and it almost felt easy. Mm-hmm. Um, and like I said, a lot of times that isn't the case. Sometimes you're really struggling to just sort of like fake act, which is just the grossest feeling on earth. Mm-hmm. But this one just felt like almost easy. And the audition, the first audition was so fun and pleasant. And Mike and Drew were so great. And Allison Jones, the casting director, everybody, it was just such a great, easy, comfortable, fun room that I left the room being almost my head was spinning. Like, I know I didn't get it, but like, damn, that was so, Mm. that felt so good. And then got a call back and it was very similar, just like a similar vibe in the room easy to talk to the, the people in the room. And, and it was just, I kept having these experiences with these auditions where I was like, it, it was like, do you know what I mean? Like, there's no way I'm getting this. Right. I know that. That's not happening. But I, that felt great. Like, mm. I don't know that that could have felt better. And it just kept going like that until, um, you know, I finally got this like 11 p.m. phone call after like waiting for a month to hear about it. And while I was watching Fargo season two, which means I was watching Ted Danson, <laughs> <laughs> falling more in love with him with every episode. There is a power in like thinking you're not going to get it. I think so too. It's weird. You it know? is weird. It's like confidence, right? Yeah. A weird sort of messed up confidence because you're a little bit like I have nothing to lose and a little bit like no desperation. Right. And I think desperation is a total audition killer, mm-hmm. but that's like actors were desperate for jobs. Yeah. So it's, yeah. that's what I mean by auditions are just cuckoo. You go in and you do it one time, which like never – in no acting situation is that, you know, if you're in a play, you're rehearsing for months. Mm-hmm. If you're on set, you're doing take after take. You're never just doing one – I mean, I'm not suggesting there's a better way to do it really. That Any other way would be so time-consuming. But auditions just feel kooky. I mean, I started as a freelance writer, which is vaguely similar. Yeah. And it's it's like also very nerve wracking because you're just like, I think I'd be good for your publication, but I also have no idea what you have in the works, what you think is good for your publication. Totally. I'm just sending you an email that hopefully is well written enough that you're like, go for it. I know. Yeah. Yeah. It's putting yourself out there in such a strange way. And there's been times that I wanted to to say, I will do good at this job. I promise. <laughs> yeah. But you can't. You just have to sort of pretend like it's not about getting a job. You're just mm-hmm. sort of like, oh, I happen to have this scene that, I, you know, it's like everyone's just playing pretend like we're all so comfortable right now. <laughs> oh, these pages? Oh, oh. Yeah, I guess I do. I guess I have memorized them actually. Yeah. <laughs> that's a, that, that's that's interesting. Um, one of the things that I, we kind of started out talking about 
playing a non-human. And I'm wondering if you have other actors, other performances of people who played aliens or robots or animals or whatever, where you were like, yeah, good work. I mean, I do love alien, animal, Pinocchio, Mm -hmm. AI type of characters. They like really, uh, since I was a little kid, have really like sort of broken my heart and I feel very like attached or I don't know. There's something there that that since I was a little kid, Pinocchio was always the saddest Disney movie Mm. to me. Yeah. And uh, Ex Mahina. Oh, yeah. Like that was – Alicia Vikander Yes. I thought she was so incredible. And even – I know this is maybe not what Spielberg's like favorite movie or people's favorite movie of his, but I really loved AI. AI is beautiful. I loved that movie. movie. Yeah. Yeah. And then there's another – this is not a uh, robot, but Jack McBrayer on 30 Rock who plays Kenneth. Who's like an immortal? Yes. There is something about him that's like if you opened him up and it was a computer, you'd be like, oh, that does make sense, actually. So there was something about his character that I really, and I've told him that in real life. I've been like, I'm stealing from you, just so you know. (laughs) Um, But there's something, you know, just sort of like there's something impossibly positive about that character that I think Janet has as well. Yeah, yeah. You've gotten to do uh, – obviously, you can't spoil the third season for us, though it's done filming. You told me. I did. Um, I could spoil but it. But I am wondering, in those first two seasons, uh, Janice done some ridiculous things. <laughs> what has been? What have been some of your favorite moments to play with her? I mean, I can't get over, like, being rebooted. That is yeah. so fun. When mm-hmm. I get to be, like, you know, begging for my life on the beach is always – we've done that a couple times, and it's just – so wild and fun and insane and and honestly like a, a and such a fun I want to say acting challenge but it's like an acting gift to to get to truly honestly deeply like beg for your life <laughs> in a sitcom um so those have been really fun I loved there back in season one early on there was like a I think episode three where Michael was um, sort of tinkering with Janet like he is that a bad way to say it he kept like sort of reprogramming her trying to make her uh, uh, I don't even really remember what it was, but he he was adjusting her dials. Wait, everything I say sounds pervy. <laughs> <laughs> but he was um, um, messing with her program. No? Okay. Okay, whatever. Um, <laughs> and so in that episode, I got to play like, you know, uh, uh, all different kinds of Janets. So that's the first time we sort of saw like different colors of her. Yeah. Um, the writers have given me like gift after gift with this character. And... Uh, you know, knowing sort of nothing going into the show, I was worried, very worried that I was going to play really one note mm-hmm. and that because I couldn't react and because I couldn't show emotion, even if I was playing, you know, true to the character, it was going to, you know, I mean, for one, it wouldn't be much of a challenge, but two, it would just get stale. Yeah. I should have put all my trust into these writers and to make sure because they would never do that. And they have proven that over and over with all these characters. But it was, it was you know, pretty quickly when I got that third episode, I was like, oh, this is real fun. And then, you know, getting to kind of grow in season two. And then I won't even get into season three, but I had some real fun. You do get to play, in essence, Janet's evil twin. Yes, I do. uh, Without spoiling any of that. But like, and you get to play regular Janet play acting as her evil twin. Oh, that's true. Yes. (laughs) Oh my God. Yeah. That's what I mean. Like they just keep, every episode is like a a gift. It's like every, at the beginning of every season, I 
send the writers a cake because I'm like, <laughs> what can I do to like make this up to you? You're just giving me like gift. I should, I don't know, buy them a, I don't know. Mm-hmm. What, what, what do writers like? There's just, I feel like I need to repay them in some way because they could have just, it would have been totally fine if Janet was just, you know, an ATM machine or whatever. <laughs> if she was just kind of like, here's your things. And then she would disappear. But they kept like growing her. Like she's, she's really, I can't explain how, how like thankful I am. Do you what do you see as her baseline reality if you're playing so many a character who's constantly evolving has yeah. so many different variations of herself what is her like ground zero ground what zero, does she build from It's yeah. like that's a great question I might tell me if I'm answering this incorrectly mm-hmm. if that makes sense but her number one everything is what do you need mm-hmm. how can I help you mm-hmm. what would make you happy and I mean honestly whatever that means and that's why you know doing something hard for her like playing bad Janet, like having good Janet play bad Janet is like, well, if this will make your life easier, and even though this is very hard for me, I am more than happy to do it. Her number one everything is I'm here to help. How can I help you? Yeah. Well, we're kind of headed into the end of the discussion, but I did want to say she's evolved so much. She's um, created things, let's say. (laughs) I have this this weird, I guess you'd call it a fan theory. Cool. I, think, I think Janet's going to become a god. I think she's going to like have her own universe or something. <laughs> I'm like, so into that. Yeah. You, um, yeah. What do you think of that? I mean, I know that Mike sure does know how this all ends. Okay. He hasn't told us. I don't really want to know. Mm-hmm. So uh, you don't like have a an opinion. Like you don't have a feeling of where you'd like to see. It's her weird. Anymore. I don't. And I think with other shows or other characters, I would. Mm-hmm. But because. Like, again, I'm, I truly mean it when I say I trust Mike Sure with my life. Mm-hmm. I know he will make the 100% correct decision with the, these characters. And I'm happy to, you know, discuss it with him or if he wants input or whatever. We do like to talk about Janet a lot. Mm. But, but I'm, like, in his hands. I'm just like, yes, whatever you want to do. So I don't want to get too attached to, like, any theory or anything, but I do keep hearing – I love this, you know, Janet is a god or whatever theory. It's just so funny and so, I mean, I can totally see where that comes from or would go or whatever. And I love it. Yeah. I think, actually, you know what? Early on, like season one, I think I thought, I think I thought it would be cool if Janet could kind of Pinocchio, if she mm-hmm. could kind of become a real boy or whatever, you know, like what it, whatever that means. And, you know, we see it with her love with Jason and there are human aspects and and I mean, why would she want to give up being an all-knowing, you know, uh, uh, informational system? But it does seem like she's she's heading in the direction of like evolving into human feelings and stuff. So I, I mean, I do want all I want for little Janet is for her to be happy, mm. and she's always making everybody else happy and doing everything for everybody else, and that can totally continue. But I would love it if she was like really deeply happy. Yeah, I yeah. love her. Can you tell? <laughs> I really love her. Well, we end every episode by asking our guests some of the same questions. Okay. So I'm going to ask you one of those, and that question is: If you saw a movie, you watched a TV show, you read a book, or you know, listened to an album, the last pop culture thing you did. And kind of what did you think of Okay. Yeah. A couple nights ago, my husband and I finished, and we really binged over the course of maybe two weekends, um, Handmaid's Tale. Okay. <gasps> That's a hard binge. It is. How, a, like, what was your record? How many did you watch in a row? I bet we watched, I bet on Sunday we probably watched five. Oh, wow. But we were, like, going towards the end, <laughs> and we just, and we, I think we kept thinking, there's eight episodes this season. Yeah. Oh, no, there's 10 episodes. Oh, no, there's 13 episodes. And we just had to get to the end. And we canceled a couple plans. <laughs> <laughs> we stayed – we do this thing in my house with my my husband and my dog. We take the mattress off the guest bed. We bring it into the living room. We put it on the ground in front of the couch and we just 
veg. We just lounge. We're just lying on the mattress, lying on the couch. It's awesome and it's perfect for binging. So anyway, that's not really what you're asking me about. What you're asking me about is what I thought of it. And I totally loved it. Mm -hmm. I think Elizabeth Moss is is a full genius. I don't think anyone in the history of the universe has ever given more to a role. Mm -hmm. I can't think of anyone that has. Mm. Because it's not a movie. It's not two hours. It's 26 hours or something like that, right? Yeah. Wait, how many? I mean, 13 episodes. Like, They're 23 hours in. Now. Yeah. So, she, I mean, she is like, I'm blown away by her. And she yeah. just keeps, you know, topping her. I, I've, I've never seen a performance like that. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, and now she's at Toronto playing uh, like a Courtney Love yeah. alike. It's I mean, like, I'm, she's and then amazing. like look back on Mad Men, like she just yeah. is, inc- I, I will watch her for forever. <laughs> and just the whole cast. I mean, you know. And Dowd and yeah. Samir Wiley. It's like such an incredible cast. I do have to just ask briefly, like, yeah. Y- yeah, that is a show that like, it's possible to say you love that show, but it's also like, and it's possible to watch five episodes I of know. it, but it's also like so hard to do. What do you, th- well, how do you think they pull that off? Like when you watch it, what is it about you that keeps drawing you back? I mean, I think it's the characters, right? You are rooting for her so hard. You just want her to be okay. Right. And you kind of know she never will, but you want her to be okay. Mm. And, you know, there's this like um, goal of getting out of there. So you're just, I mean, it's frustrating and it's maddening and it's horrible. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like, I could see someone hating the show, Yeah, but there is something that I I think I'm just so drawn into these characters and all the characters, the bad characters too. I mean, the evil characters Mm. of which there are many. I'm, I I just want, (laughs) yeah, it's like, What's wrong with me? <laughs> <laughs> on that note. Uh, <laughs> well, uh, The Good Place is on, uh, the first two seasons are on Netflix and it returns to NBC on Thursday, September 27th. Darcy, thank you. For thank you us. so much for having me. After the break, my conversation with Natasha Rothwell of HBO's Insecure. But first, you'll hear an advertiser segment brought to you by Betterment, an online investing tool for people who refuse to settle for average. Ten years ago, the Great Recession sent shockwaves through the global economy. And in that uncertain economic environment, consumers were gripped with fear and doubt. 2008, it was, you know, the Great Recession. People in general had lost trust in the incumbents. And I thought there really ought to be an obvious best answer to the question, what should I do with my money? But there wasn't. That's John Stein, CEO of the financial services company Betterment, which he founded because he felt the economic industry was failing the average investor. Imagine a healthcare system designed with just a shelf of medicine, and you can go and you can take whatever you want, however much you want, but there's no doctors. Just just figure it out. And I think that's a crazy way to design a system that everyone has to use. I thought, how do we help people make great decisions, put the right kind of information in their hands to help them do better? So along with a team of experts, John developed an online financial advisor that could work for anyone. Maybe you're retiring, or maybe you're thinking about buying a home or having a child in the future. We learn about those things and create goals for you and a financial plan. It's all the things that a great traditional financial advisor might do for you. But financial advisors charge, you know, maybe four times what what Betterment charges. Betterment, outsmart average. Please remember, investing involves risk. This has been advertiser content from Betterment. Thanks for that note from Betterment. To learn more about their tools, visit betterment.com slash interesting. 
HBO's Insecure is really just kind of one of my favorite comedies. It's a show that is so smart about relationships between women exiting their 20s, entering their 30s. I guess now that they're in season three, they're sort of firmly ensconced in their 30s. But you, you get what I'm talking about. One of my favorite things about it is the way it depicts the friend group at the center of the show, led by Issa, played by Issa Rae, the show's co-creator. But it also features the characters of Molly and Kelly and Tiffany. And Kelly is one of the funniest characters on the show. She's played by Natasha Rothwell, who is also a writer on the show. And what I like about this character is how they manage to walk the line between making her a really direct and funny truth teller who's always coming in and zeroing in on exactly what's wrong in a situation and saying that just out loud, which is a terrific comedic character and always has been, but also like make her sort of this grounded person who really like tells it like it is and really cares about her friends. And I think that they walk that tightrope beautifully, but Natasha also walks it beautifully in playing the character. Natasha's been in a bunch of other stuff. I loved her in the movie Love, Simon this year, and she's going to be in Wonder Woman 1984, which sadly we didn't get to talk about, but I, I hope you'll still stick around. Natasha was so great to talk with about what it means to also write for the character you're playing. I hope that you'll stick around because it's a great conversation. Natasha, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. So I want to start with, this is a question for, not just for Insecure fans, but if you watch Insecure, you'll know what I'm talking about. The most recent episode as we record this, your character and the other characters went to Coachella, and I was like, did they actually (laughs) film at Coachella? And then I realized that you probably could have faked it, like if I looked closely (laughs) enough. So tell me about that. Did did you film at Coachella? No, we did not. We shot in the valley. (laughs) Um, and, uh, it was definitely like 20, it gets cold in the desert. Like this is, this is Mm -hmm. something I learned, um, not (laughs) from LA and, uh, it was just, it was brutally cold and we shot from 7 PM to 7 AM and, um, it was brutal, very, very brutal and very, very cold. Um, and we had like maybe, I don't know, 300 extras and, uh, dressed in festival festival gear. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, it was a lot of fun. That episode also ended with a pretty big reveal, which I'm not going to say here in case people haven't caught up on the show. You should watch it. it it's wonderful. So I'm not going to say what happened, but like you probably had to keep that a secret. And I'm wondering yeah. how good are you at keeping secrets? I'm pretty good. I'm like just a classic grade school goody-goody. So if there's a rule... <laughs> If there's a rule yeah. to follow, I'm down to to follow it. So yeah. I skirted it in a lot of interviews because um, a lot of people had feelings about this reveal yeah. and uh, not knowing that it was going to happen, but, you know, concerning who it involved. And so I had to be pretty clever with my responses. Yeah, that's that's something that's sort of interesting to me is that Insecure is not – I mean, it's not a really plot-heavy show, but it like does have those story elements. And tell me about you. You also work with the writers. You're in in the in the writers' room, as far as I can tell. Yeah. And and like, tell me about crafting sort of that the story arcs for these characters, because even though it's a very more character-heavy, less plot-driven show, like there is a strong through line to the plot each season. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I I started out on the show as writing and didn't get cast as Kelly until about three or four months into the writer's room. And working together with the writers to sort of craft the stories that we're telling has been a real privilege because we don't get to see stories like this every day where we get to see a black woman be ordinary. Mm, <laughs> you know, yeah. she's she's not 
taking over someone else's story or being a supportive person to someone else's story. She's allowed to be flawed and she's allowed to be, you know, stupid and make dumb mistakes. So it's been a real privilege to write from my experience of making dumb mistakes and uh, a shared story of like, oh, we get to see the ordinary become extraordinary because we're actually showing someone from a marginalized community just going to work and not being great at it. And that's kind of revolutionary. Yeah, that's the thing I've talked about a lot with people who are uh, people who are from traditionally underrepresented groups on television and in movies. And they talk about like, yeah, it's cool to have like the superhero version of yourself, but also you just want to see like people who fuck up, you know? Yeah, absolutely. what's What's the power of that? Yeah, I mean, it. I feel like when you you feel seen, right? You you get to see yourself mm-hmm. represented, not in one aspect of just like, oh, there's a person of color on screen doing a thing. It's like, oh, there's a person who has my aspirations, which are to be better than than average. You know what I yeah. mean? Mm-hmm. Um, and to see someone struggle in trying to figure out who they are, I feel like that's a very humanizing act as a writer and as a performer to get to play characters that. Um, have their feet on the ground and are and stumble sometimes. And I think uh, some of the biggest responses that I get on social media and if people stop me on the street are just like, I'm you or I see myself as you. And that's the biggest compliment because it's not, you know, you're out here doing it for the, for the culture, which is what we're doing also. It's just like you're doing it for the culture and also like I was you last night at the club. And it's just like, great. <laughs> What, uh, what have people told you, like, they, they recognize that about myself and Kelly, or, oh, when Kelly did that, like, I recognize that, you know? I think it's, Kelly represents sort of just, like, the unapologetic, honest friend in a friend group who's just like, you know, I'm not afraid to read my friend and tell her how I feel about her. And people identify with being that, like, honest friend. And so mm-hmm. a lot of people like, I'm you in the group. And also I think... Kelly, she just gives zero fucks. Like she, <laughs> she is so free, and I think that's why I love playing her because I'm not as free as her. Yeah. I give a lot of fucks. I care very deeply about a lot of things, and I'm always thinking about what other people think of me, and that can sort of create a prison unto itself, you know. And I feel like Kelly, um, she loves very deeply, and she's fiercely protective of Issa, and she's honest to to the point of vulnerability and it's just like I'm going to tell you the truth even if it's hard for you to hear yeah and so people have stopped me on the street and they're just like I was you I told my friend the other day she's broke (laughs) (laughs) and I'm like good for you I'm glad that you're honest I'm glad that you know I've provoked honesty (laughs) yeah yeah that's the thing that I think is interesting because it allows Kelly to be both a really strong comedic and dramatic character. Like you can come into a scene and just be like the truth teller who makes everybody laugh because you cut to the chase, but also you can be somebody who kind of takes the other characters to task. And tell me about balancing those two sides of the character. I mean, for me, that's it's why Kelly has been such a an amazing character to play because I I love gravity and levity, and I think they necessitate each other, especially in the storytelling I like to do and be a part of. So, And I also feel very deeply that the best comedians that I've seen and aspire to be 
approach comedy with a, a dramatic edge. You know, they, they're they saying something or doing something ridiculous, but they believe it with their whole heart, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so to be able to play Kelly, if she's doing something comedic, she's not thinking in that moment, I'm being funny right now. She's mm-hmm. being dead-ass serious, you know? Like, she's, yeah. she's very passionate about what she's saying. She believes what she's saying. And so it's been a real honor to flex both of those muscles creatively as an actor and as a writer to to try to find her her subtext and really ground it and not just be a caricature. Because I think that's sort of been the trope of if if you're a plus-size black woman in Hollywood, it's okay, you're going to be a caricature and not a fully formed character. So it's been really important to me to ground her and to have gravity and levity be a part of her grounding. Well, yeah, you, you mentioning that does make me like I had never once thought of how Kelly could conceivably play into that sort of that archetype because I just have never seen that in your portrayal of her. So I'm wondering, like when you're in the writer's room, how do you advocate for the character? Like how do you say, you know, without like making every episode the Kelly episode? Right, right, right. <laughs> well, I think first and foremost, like all of the characters on the show are extensions of Issa. You know, it's sort of how we approach it. Mm-hmm. It's that it's a it's a love story between Issa and Molly, and it's a friendship love, you know, about how they take care of each other and support each other and grow together and grow apart and come back to each other. Mm-hmm. And all of the other supporting characters on the show are extensions of that. You know, we are there to tell their story. And so that really helps keep it not the Tiffany show, not the Kelly show, not the Lauren show. You know, it's Issa's journey and what is it like to be a young woman growing up in South L.A., going through what she's going through. And that helps sort of ground it. And in writing her, we write all—I mean, every script of the show is written as a group. We group write it. Even if it's, like, you know, attributed to one of the writers, we we write everything together. And it really helps to have her voice and the voices of all the characters filtered through multiple writers because we really get to have that nuanced, you know, storytelling, Mm -hmm. which I think— is so satisfying to be a part of and to see. Yeah, yeah, that's that's great. One thing I do kind of wonder about is, you know, the show is really presented through Issa and Molly's eyes in a lot of ways. And I'm wondering, like, to what degree do you think that what we see on the show of Kelly is filtered through their perspectives? Does that make sense? No, absolutely. I think that, and not to get all (laughs) um, philosophical about it, but isn't that real life? Like the versions of the people that we meet, it's filtered through our POV, right? Right. And they may have had, you know, a terrible day, but you get to see that snippet and you attribute it to what you want it to be. But I do think what we're finding over the course of, you know, this is our third season, we're able to introduce aspects of the various characters' personalities uh, in their own right, mm-hmm. uh, even if they're not the star of the the story that we're telling. Because mm-hmm. I feel like in most shows, you know, Insecure, you know, regardless of the show, you know, the first season is exposition. This is who we are. You know, season two, you know, this is this is why you should care. And season three is like, you know, things are getting complicated. Right. And I feel like season two and three, we were able to really sort of delve into Issa's world and get to know who her friends are and how they inform, you know, her choices in her life. Yeah, yeah. I guess I'd say, do you have thoughts on who Kelly is outside of what we see of her on the show? Like, do you have sort of firm ideas about like what she does when she's not around the other characters? Yeah, I mean, I think that she's fiercely independent. And one of the joys of playing her, is she's one of the only characters on the show not obsessed about being in a relationship or feeling less than because she isn't. Yeah. Mm-hmm. She's self-possessed. She loves her body. She loves being sexual. She loves her friends. 
And I think that her life outside of that, we were able to see earlier this season that she's a very successful CPA. So she's good at her job and she's good at life. She's kind of goals, honestly. <laughs> like, yeah. I mean, if I if I didn't have the chance to play her, I'd want to be her in real life. And I, I still do because I think that she sort of represents this sort of version of what it means to be modern and single and not having that feel like an affliction, mm-hmm. right? It's just... It's it's who she is, and she's proud of it, and she loves her life. And I think that the character or quality of her that I love is she's just so fiercely loyal and an advocate for those who may not be advocates for themselves. So I imagine that she's that way right. in every aspect of her life. You know, yeah. she could be at the Whole Foods and someone's getting, you know, you didn't ring up that rice right. You know, <laughs> like she would like she she would stick up for the people around her. Yeah, you mentioned telling stories about plus size black women. And I think that, you know, obviously the black women part of that equation is important, but so is the plus size part. Like we don't do great storytelling about plus size people. No. Across <laughs> races, genders. It like, I, I am, I am someone who's overweight and I've seen so many, you know, fat white guys fall through tables in my right, life. And it's just right. like, okay, sure. But so tell me about how you approach that uh, writing sort of that aspect of the character. Yeah. I mean, for me, it's writing, a scene and I happen to be plus size. I feel like writing to it and making it sort of like, let's all talk about it after school special style does a really huge disservice to what the goal is and what I, and I hate the term normalizing, but in the way that we can write a play or a movie and cast someone who's a, you know, a typical size we don't address her size in that writing, right? Mm-hmm. We write the words, we put put it on page, we explore the character dynamic and the plot and the story and the themes we want to tell. And then we put those words in someone's mouth. And just by putting those words in Kelly's mouth, and I'm the one who happens to play her, to me that's yeah. revolutionary because she's mm-hmm. not – Every episode, if it were an after-school special about how she's so glad that, you know, she has friends that accept her, you know, the way she looks, <laughs> I would not watch that show. <laughs> it would yeah. be depressing and not the point and completely antithetical and fatphobic. And to me, a self-possessed woman who's good at her job and great with her friends and uh, smart and intelligent and fun and funny mm-hmm. – Put those words in anyone's mouth, right? And then you can put that in a person who's plus size and that's even more powerful because you're allowing her to be three-dimensional and not just be something to apologize for, which is the most upsetting version of that where you see, oh, we're we're putting this person on screen and we're going to have them apologize for how they look and how they feel uh, for for the way they look. And then we can get to a story like I don't I'm not here for that. (laughs) You said something early in that answer that I sort of was interested in because you said you don't like the term normalizing. And I I kind of don't either. And I'd just like to hear you sort of expound on that. What is it about that word that bugs you? Well, then it it substantiates the idea that there is a normal Mm -hmm. that we should be striving for. Right. And that is just the bump on the word in the same way where it's just like the LGBTQIA community. When I did Love, Simon, we're just like, this is a great story that normalizes the queer experience. Mm -hmm. And I'm just like... To me, that bumps, right? Yeah. It's it's the idea of just, you know, we told a rom-com a la John Hughes and our lead happened to be queer. Yeah. That's the power of the story is that when people saw the movie, they're like, oh, you didn't have – it wasn't an after-school special about, a, you know, this kid 
And the coming out story is the crescendo of the movie. The crescendo is when the guy gets the guy. Yeah. And they treat it the same way, you know, Lloyd Dobler <laughs> did in the movie, right? Yeah. So it, it's, it's, it's to me, the, the word normalizing, I, and I haven't figured out a better word. That's why I apologize for using the word before using yeah. it. But it's the closest thing I can come to to express the need to validate every person's experience and having marginalized groups and underrepresented minorities having their stories told in the same frequency that we see and hear the white heteronormative cis male story. Yeah, yeah. Let's like let's let's just increase the numbers of the other stories. I've been trying to think about like using the term centralizing like the idea mm. Mm-hmm. De- decentralizing the other experience yeah. and moving this. Yeah, but like, that's not quite right, but it feels closer to me, like what sort of yeah. we're trying to do with these projects. It feels better. It feels better. I'll steal that. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, one thing I, I did want to ask you about Love, Simon, because I thought that was a, a charming little movie and you're just, you're just terrific in it. You have just, you, you have just a few scenes, but you are like, you are like the high school drama teacher, <laughs> I want to say. And like, tell me about, tell me about coming in and just like getting to be a scene stealer, you know, just getting to have those big moments. Oh, man. Well, it's never the goal, right? I didn't show up to set and I'm like, I'm going to show off. Um, (laughs) I was uh, lucky enough to have an amazing script and Greg Berlanti, the director, he knew that I had an improv background and really encouraged me to play and really explore the character on her feet. And I brought to the film my real life experience. I was a high school drama teacher in the Bronx for four years. Mm -hmm. So it was a real full circle moment (laughs) to be in front, be in front of these actors playing teenagers and getting upset at them for not doing the production the way I wanted them to. And I had flashbacks of, you know, (laughs) Screaming in the back of an auditorium <laughs> over your good man, Charlie Brown. <laughs> so um, she was just a treat to play. And yeah. uh, it was truly one of the best experiences that I had. Well, tell me about, like, what did you learn about acting from being a, a drama teacher? It seems like maybe you either learned a lot or you learned <laughs> surprisingly little. Oh, I learned everything. Sure. And then in the very sort of cliched, like, you know, they taught me kind of way. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it's cliched because it's very real. You know, when I, I graduated with a degree in theater and I knew that whatever bread job I would have to get, and if you have a degree in theater, you need to get a job mm-hmm. to get bread. Yeah. <laughs> so um, I wanted that job to be as close to the arts as possible. Mm-hmm. And I sort of figured out about being a teaching artist and it sort of parlayed itself into being a theater teacher And so the proximity to being creative to me was how I made peace with not being able to do it myself. I was going to be teaching other students an art form that freed me when I was their age. So it was very cathartic in that way. And in the them teaching me aspect, when you watch a student who is shy and scared and she's approaching, you know, Oedipus and... Um, she's saying these words that are empowering and then you see her the next day in school and she's, you know, her chest is out and she's standing a little straighter because she played a king the day before. I'm watching this from, you know, the sidelines and I'm just like, you know what, I'm going to, I'm going to go into that audition on Saturday (laughs) and I'm going to, I'm going to do, you know, you, you find that their ability to like the practical application of what I was teaching them in class, when you're that young, you just, you put it into practice more quickly Mm -hmm. where I feel like as an adult, you have to synthesize it through, you know, how you were raised and all of, all of the bullshit that you bring to the table. 
And so I was just reminded constantly in front of them that like you can take these lessons and apply them quickly and then also try new things because for everyone that I taught, it was, you know, they had to take drama 101, right? Their freshman drama class. And all of them had never done anything like it before. And they just, they dared greatly each time. And so it was a great reminder every day to just do that in my own life. Yeah. What is it do you think that that sort of prevents us as adults from accessing that that essential sort of creative spirit? I look back at the stuff yeah. I wrote when I was a teenager and it's terrible, but I wrote a lot of yeah! it. So. <laughs> <laughs> I feel you on that. I think that like, I feel like it happens around like, I don't know, it has to be high school, yeah. like later on in high school, like you become so self-conscious and you care what other people think to the point of, not trying and being afraid to Mm -hmm. fail. And I think that, you know, you think the older you get, the chances to make mistakes, there aren't many. Yeah, You know, you feel like, oh, if I fail at this, then, you know, I I can't do X, Y, and Z afterward. And so I think it's trying to be mindful of the fact that, you know, taking risks and making mistakes are a luxury. I saw this... (laughs) I saw this, it's not cheesy because I remember it. I was at Ikea and they have, you know, the ready-made posters. Yeah. And one said, you know, if you're making mistakes, it means you're trying. Mm. And I I saw that and I was like, you know what? I'm just going to put that in my note section. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to put it in my note sections in my phone and I'm going to look at this because as adults, we forget that there's honor and nobility in trying something. And we oftentimes, I feel put the reward or the glory on the succeeding part of it as opposed to the trying part of it, which I feel like there's such nobility in trying and there's such honor in it because you're out there fucking doing it, you know? And so that to me is, uh, as an adult, something I'm trying to relearn. I'm trying to make more mistakes. Yeah. One of the, one of the best pieces of writing advice I ever heard was you have to give yourself permission to be terrible. And like, yes. it's really true. You have to write the terrible draft so you yeah. can make it a good draft. And the, uh, my, my favorite is be uh, prolific, not perfect. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, like write a ton until your your worst is your best, right? Mm. And you you get to get it out there. But you don't, you don't if you think every single thing is precious and has to be perfect all the time. As someone who writes and performs, how do those two skills sort of inform each other as you work? I perform every character I write as I'm writing. Yeah. <laughs> as I'm writing, um, I was just working on a script last week and my dog was looking at me like I'm full crazy because I was writing at home instead of in an office and I'm saying all the lines out loud and hearing how they sound in my mouth and how they sound out loud because it's, especially if you're writing a script, it's not just meant to be read, it's meant to be heard. And so for me, it's a huge benefit to be able to love saying things out loud (laughs) and really putting emotion into it. And so I'll perform all of the characters that I write out loud and hearing it out loud myself. Mm -hmm. Um, It's really helpful. And I feel like the writer in me, I'm learning, right? So prior to Insecure, I was on SNL. And so that's sketch and that's a different Mm -hmm. style than writing for television. And I remember, (laughs) you know, putting something in a script. And I'm like, oh, they're going to like make that. Like we're yeah. going to have to go there. If we set this scene at night, we have to like shoot overnight. <laughs> so <laughs> so it, you, be, you, you think, you know, as a writer producer, you're like, oh, I have to be 
conscious of the fact like, oh, do I want to blow up the car because that's going to be a day of, you know, that's going to be a day of shooting or can we hear it in the background? So there's things that inform it from both angles. You know, you're thinking about it as a writer producer, what makes the most sense? And then what trumps both of them for me is like what tells the best story. Like I would never sacrifice any, any of that for, uh, you know, a thin story that to me is defeats the purpose. Well, when you're pitching out lines in in the insecure room or, or working on insecure scripts, who is your favorite non Kelly character to perform? Oh man. Um, I love them all so much. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's interesting. Cause like when we do internal table reads, I am always cast as Kelly, but I get a lot of like the peripheral characters. Um, cause I like, playing multiple characters is sort of my jam. And so I'll get like, I'll read for 10. Um, but when I'm like writing on a script by myself, I really love Molly. Yeah. I think that like her, her mind is just messed up in a very similar way <laughs> to mine, where there's just this intense pressure Molly puts on herself to get it right and do things the way that she thinks they're supposed to be done. And I, I suffer from that. And I'm working on it, but I, I relate to her her frustration in a real way. And yeah. I really loved writing Frida. Frida was, like, one of my favorites to write of just, like, you know, a woke white woman and dealing <laughs> dealing with teaching black and brown kids and, like, trying to figure out how to be friends with Issa. Yeah. It was really fun to get inside that, that mindset. I recognize too much of myself in Frida. <laughs> um. We would get along great. <laughs> <laughs> Well, uh, Issa and uh, Prentice Penny the, mm-hmm. uh, are two like just terrific, terrifically smart people who have, have made this this terrific thing. Like, what what have you learned from working with them that you think you're going to carry forward into future work? So much. I feel like Prentice was really an alchemist when it came to uh, the writers' room mm-hmm. and the personalities he selected to be around that table. I feel like it's it's witchcraft a little bit because I'm just like this is the most cohesive supportive room and we like we like each other enough to hang out outside of work kind of room mm-hmm. um and he was responsible for sort of he and Issa were responsible sort of for choosing the people to be around the table and trusting us to tell us the story and Prentice was just really always exceptional about sort of taking on the brunt of the stress mm-hmm. that would have probably filtered down to us hadn't he shouldered a lot of it and protected us from sort of like, you know, the typical, you know, bureaucracy that has to happen in in making TV and was a real example, you know, as far as that's concerned. Um, And Issa's just, the word that just came to mind to try to describe her is grace. Mm. Mm. (laughs) She's such a graceful, humble person where... Like, she would come in after, like, coming from an event and, you know, sit around the table. She'd switch and, you know, take off a a gown, a very fancy gown, and put on, like, her jeans and her hoodie and come sit around the table and pitch on stuff and and run the room. And I'm just looking at I'm like, bitch, you are a cover girl. Like, you are a legit cover girl. And you're, like, coming in here so accessible, so real, so honest. And we really connected on just, like, her—obviously, she— wrote awkward black girl and Mm -hmm. she's awkward and I'm 
so painfully awkward. <laughs> so we just connect on that level. Like I remember texting her when I was shooting something and I'm like, do you know so-and-so? And, -so? and uh, she was like, yes. And I said, good, because I'm going to tell them you said to say hi, because I don't know how to talk to them. <laughs> and she's just wrote back. She's just like, we're the same person. <laughs> so I think that, you know, her relatability and her ability to compartmentalize and really sort of wear multiple hats is something that I'll take onto my show and, you know, Prentice's leadership and ability to sort of manage personalities. I definitely want to take those into the next rooms I go into. Great, great. Well, we end every episode by asking our guests some of the same questions. So I'm going to ask you Ooh. one of those now. And that question is, who is the person, a living or dead, that you've learned the most about acting or writing from? Basically, the person you've learned the most from that you've never met. Oh, Wow. This is, this is, okay. Can I, I it's going to be a two-parter. <laughs> That's great. Go for it. I, oh man, who, who I've never met. Never met. It would be a combination of, oh man. So I want to say like Lily Tomlin. I want to say Carol Burnett. I want to mm. say Gilda Radner. I want to say there was a uh, sort of this, Coven of comedic women. <laughs> yeah, mm, There's this coven of comedic women who all made this pact. And the pact was, it's okay to get ugly and dirty and transform our faces and our bodies to, to tell a story and commit so fucking hard to a character mm -hmm. that just was an education to me. Like, I remember watching Mama's Family and being obsessed with these women who were chameleons and that use their bodies to help tell stories. And so I'll say that's one answer, that sort of like coven of women. Hmm. And then um, Steve Martin has the quote, be so good they can't ignore you. Yeah. And I have it framed on my wall at home. And it stuck out to me because I feel like as a person of color, you know, the, the saying is, you know, you have to work twice as hard for half as much. And if mm. you want to be great, you have to be, you have to really stand out mm -hmm. and you can't, you know, there can be no excuses. Right. Um, yeah. And so for me, it was always important to keep my eyes on my own paper. Yeah. I really struggle with like looking over at other people and seeing what they're doing and seeing, am I as good as them? Am I doing enough? And that quote has always reminded me to keep my eyes on my own paper and let that be so good that they look at your paper. You know what I mean? Like yeah. be so good that they can't ignore you. Mm. And it's a constant reminder because I'm always, my neck is always straining <laughs> <laughs> to check in on other people because I'm constantly worried that I'm not doing enough or that I'm not good enough or someone else has figured something out that I, I'm working on or that I need help with. Yeah. So it's really been a huge lesson to me, and I've never met him. <laughs> I hope to one day, yeah, but yeah. Uh, hugely helpful in my uh, comedic and performative and creative education. Well, Steve Martin, if you're listening. If you're listening, let's work together. It'd be great. <laughs> <laughs> Insecure airs on HBO. Natasha, this was lovely. Thank you for dropping Thank in. Thank you. I think your interesting died and discovered that it was a wonderful person. Everything about this show is great and everybody loves it. It's in charge in the afterlife. They love the program. And that's because it's hosted and executive produced by Todd Vanderworth. In case you hadn't guessed, that's me. Our producer is Bridget Armstrong. Our editor this week is Griffin Tanner. Executive producer of audio at Vox Media is Nisha Kirwa. 
Our sound designer is Miles Ewell. Our logo design is thanks to Victor Ware, Crystal Stevens, and Georgia Cowley. Our production manager is Alex Allreich. Our production coordinator is Carrie Clements. Our audio engineering and studio are thanks to Rebel Talk Network of Los Angeles. We also recorded Natasha this week at the Vox Media Podcast Studio in New York. Our recording engineer is Brennan Hurtado. You can rate, review, and subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher or Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. It really helps us get the word out about the show and get great guests. You can email me, Todd at Vox.com. You can email the show, ityi.podcast, itye.podcast at Vox.com. You can tweet at me at tvoti We're going to be back next week with somebody else from the world of arts and entertainment, somebody who I think is interesting, but... Until then, every season of Insecure like has a, a naming convention like like one season was. Everything as far one season was Hella, whatever, this season is whatever, dash like. And I think we should start doing that with the show. So if you have submissions for what our episode naming convention should be, please send them to me. It would really help every week when we have to do like the name of the show, which which takes forever because we have to whatever. But thank you. Thank you in advance for all your help. Every week, I get to see the new episode of Explained, Vox's show on Netflix, a few days before it comes out on Wednesday. It's great, and I can tell you, you need to watch this one. So think about this. If you turn on your tap, you can get clean water anytime. But it's easy to forget that the quest for that has been one of the defining struggles of human history. This episode shows what we've learned and what we haven't. Today, 7 in 10 people on Earth can count on having running water in their homes. At least so they think. Cape Town in South Africa is the first major city to plan to indefinitely shut off its water supply. And it's not just Cape Town. This episode explains what's happening and why. In 18 minutes, this episode answers the questions, how have we built a world where we don't have enough of its most valuable resource? And as this crisis grows, what will that new world look like? So go watch The World's Water Crisis, Explained on Netflix. You can search for Explained or for Vox or go straight to netflix.com slash explained.